everybody. Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by Carla Marinucci. She is a senior writer for Politico. She writes the California Politico Playbook, and I'm so thrilled that she's here. Carla, welcome. Oh, Jessica, so good to be with you, and congratulations. The podcast has been so successful. I'm so happy. (laughs) <laughs> I'm so happy too. And I'm so happy that you are here and you are uh, making a repeat appearance. And let's start with the first news, which is that Governor Gavin Newsom has picked, unsurprisingly, Secretary of State Alex Padilla to fill Senator Kamala Harris's seat when she becomes Vice President Kamala Harris. Is there any part of this that was a surprise? Was this ever in question? Well, you know, in the in the recent weeks, Newsom was getting a lot of pressure um, from various ethnic groups who also wanted, uh, you know, uh, to have their say on this really important. This is a plum seat. It's one that is possibly going to be held by for for decades. And uh, you know, Alex Padilla has always been the front runner. He's a longtime friend and supporter of Gavin Newsom, going back to his 2010 gubernatorial race. He is. Uh, from Southern California, which uh, matters a lot that that those Senate seats have been held by Northern Californians for decades now. And the fact is, I mean, uh, look, Padilla is Hispanic and boy, Latinos in this state comprise 40 percent of the electorate. They have never in California's 170 year history held a U.S. Senate seat. And Gavin Newsom likes to make history. We knew that. Um, because he did it as mayor of San Francisco with same-sex marriage. Um, so, so yes, Padilla was the front runner and long considered the one to beat. But in recent weeks, boy, African-American women, uh, including Dr. Shirley Weber, were putting on a lot of pressure on Newsom, saying that is the only seat held by an African-American woman in the Senate. They have worked centuries to get that seat, or, and, and generations uh, of women have worked. And the fact is, African-American women held such an important role in the election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, and they have an important role in the the U.S. Senate races in Georgia, and uh, they wanted that seat. So there was a little bit of drama there uh, coming to the end. Was was, uh, Newsom going to, who was Newsom going to listen to uh, in the end? We we found out. How much of this is Governor Newsom liking historic firsts? And how much of this is Governor Newsom and Alex Padilla have a longstanding relationship. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about that relationship. Yeah, you know, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, Look, Gavin Newsom is up for re-election in two years. Uh, He's got a a recall uh, movement hanging over him uh, or, you know, threatening him. He needs to have somebody in the U.S. Senate seat who has his back and who's going to help him in that re-election Effort. He also needs somebody in that U.S. Senate seat who's going to be able to stand on their own, who uh, who is known around the state, who has one statewide office, preferably a lot of people thought, uh, who could withstand any kind of challenge. Um, And that's what he got in Alex Padilla. Uh, Padilla was the chair of Newsom's 2010 uh, gubernatorial uh, campaign. He he pulled out uh, challenging Jerry Brown in the beginning. But the fact is, he's been there for him for a long, long time. And he is also a longtime friend of, of Dianne Feinstein, who endorsed him in this uh, uh, seat. Uh, so, so he had a lot going for him. 
And look, he's got this incredible American story. His, uh, you know, his parents were both Mexican immigrants who met here in Southern California. They, neither of them had uh, even an elementary school education, I understand. The dad was a short order cook. The mom was a house cleaner. And yet Padilla ended up going to Southern California um, public schools and graduated from MIT with a degree in mechanical engineering. And then at 26, uh, was elected to uh, LA City Council. So he's had this incredible career and incredible life. And for a lot of reasons, he, he fit the mold. They do go back. They trust each other. They have been there for each other. That was important to Newsom as he faces a re-election coming up in two years. And, you know, we've got this recall threat coming. So I think that was that was a key factor in, in the decision. I watched the announcement video, which is a Zoom call between Governor Newsom and Alex Padilla. And I did get emotional because of what you said, his backstory, because this is, in my opinion, the best of us. If you agree or disagree with his policy proposals or you think that he's interesting or not interesting, I mean, that this is the best of us to have somebody whose parents, he said, you know, how many pancakes did my dad have yeah. to flip? How many houses yeah. did my mom have to clean? And that to me is the uh, antidote to a lot of what we're seeing right now. And, yeah, I think I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think I saw that as well. It was emotional. And, and it goes to that, you know, famous line from the musical Hamilton, uh, immigrants, we get the job done. I mean, yeah. his, his family had, you know, no, uh, you know, silver spoon going. I mean, he had to work for everything. And yet here he is today. He did tear up uh, during that conference. I mean, the fact that uh, his story is one thing and the fact that he is he has now, as as a statewide officer, uh, has has been become a sort of a national figure, and that also helped his chances. That I think, and then of course, Gavin Newsom gets to appoint his replacement. All of those factors came together for Alex Padilla, and um, despite some very strong lobbying from African American women and some very strong arguments they had uh, for holding that seat, um, you know, Newsom had to make some enemies and some friends with this one. Latinos are celebrating. But yeah, there are some broken hearts. Well, as you said, this is this gives Governor Newsom really a chance to reshape a lot of California because Alex Padilla's seat is vacant. Now there will be a vacant seat for the Secretary of State. Do you want to tell us what we already uh, know <laughs> in terms of who will be the next Secretary of State? And that's going to be uh, Dr. Shirley Weber. She is another, you know, American story. Um, First of all, she's the uh, first African-American to get to the California state legislature from the south of Los Angeles. Um, she represents an area of uh, San Diego, Chula Vista, National City, that area. Um, this is somebody who also came from a very poor background. Both her parents were from Arkansas. She, was, she grew up in poverty. The father only had a sixth grade education. She ended up going to UCLA. Uh, she earned three degrees by the time she was 26, including a PhD, and uh, went on to become an educator. And that has been sort of her strength. She is highly, um, you know, highly respected in the uh, California Assembly. She is uh, just a force of nature. She's described as I've, I've interviewed her. She is a, she's an awesome interviewer. She she doesn't have very many enemies. I got to say that she is, uh, you know, a member of the California Legislative Black Caucus and has led uh, that group with uh, with a, a tremendous uh, respect. 
but you know, she's 72. Um, and I think that's where some of the interest is in this, in the appointment here. Newsom had, uh, has a lot of groups also competing for this seat. And a couple of legislators have already declared uh, their intention to run for Secretary of State, Lorena Gonzalez being one of them from San Diego area, and um, Evan Lowe, uh, from, who, who's Asian American and LGBT, and he's from the Silicon Valley. So um, this may be a way of sort of sidestepping those two um, who, who want to be and uh, to, to deliver it to uh, Shirley Weber right now as long as she wants to hold the seat. And, uh, right, and, and that was a way to sort of avoid controversy and get some kudos for, uh, for naming somebody who is really just so highly thought of in the California state legislature. Yeah, I think Governor Newsom, as you said, he faced a difficult position because he was going to have to pick kind of which camp, which right. uh, lawmaker he <laughs> right. was going to support. And so he really just avoided that completely. Now there's another vacancy, and we don't know the answer as of, well, at least as of the time that we're recording, to who will be the next attorney general. Javier Becerra has been tapped to be part of the Biden administration. Uh do we know who has buzz? I mean, is it just anybody in California who has a bar card and has been practicing for five years or is, is there a slightly smaller group? I think there's a sl slightly smaller group now. Um, and who we're seeing is uh, some of the people who are being most talked about. One is Rob Bonta. He is the uh, East Bay Assemblyman. Uh, he is, he is um, a leader in the Asian Pacific Island Caucus. He's, he's one of the uh, uh, first um, uh, of Filipino background uh, state legislature, first to become a state legislature in California's history. Uh, so he's a groundbreaker there. And uh, boy, he's getting a lot of play. A lot of folks want to see him named, uh, uh, including in the uh, API community. And he's, uh, I, I think this is somebody who's being talked about as, as a potential, but also being talked about um, is Rick Chavez Zur who is uh, the head of Equality California, one of the leading advocacy groups for LGBT community. And this is another sort of powerful constituency in California. Across, of course, crosses all ethnic lines. But when you talk about a group that is um, democratic, uh, fundraising potential is there, the advocacy is there, the voices are there, um, and it has been a powerful um, force within the Democratic Party in California. So uh, many people are also advocating for uh, Rick Zur. And so that's, uh, that. I think those are two the leading candidates we're looking at when, uh, when we're discussing the uh, AGC. It's such a game of musical chairs, and it's so fascinating <laughs> that Governor Newsom has this much power. Now, there's another national story when it comes to uh, the other senator from California, Senator Dianne Feinstein. Do we... Yes. <laughs> Do we have any thoughts or predictions at the end of her term? I believe she would be 92, if I'm not incorrect. That's uh, there, correct. You know, yes. there have been some stories that um, she's maybe not working at full steam. I am not in any way qualified to pass judgment on that. You follow California politics longer and in more detail than anybody else I know. Do you have any predictions as to whether she'll serve the term or have there been any discussions maybe with Governor Newsom about him having yet another Senate seat to fill? Right. Then that is that is the speculation. That is the buzz. Look, I mean, 
Uh, I've covered Diane Feinstein for a long time from San, being from San Francisco, uh, and this is a woman who has uh, certainly survived uh, uh, many, many uh, political threats, but also uh, just in, in, in personal life. I mean, uh, witnessed uh, I mean the uh, death of George Moscone, the assassination of George Moscone, and uh, and you know has has survived recall attempts too. She she has survived a lot. Uh, but and and I have to say, as somebody who's watched her up close and personal in in uh, editorial boards at the uh, San Francisco Chronicle, where I used to work, this is a woman who could sit there, surrounded by reports, hundreds of pages, and basically say to her staff, uh, "Please get me page eighty-seven, chap, uh, paragraph three of this report. I need to I need to uh, cite that." I mean, she had it all in her mind. She was she was formidable to watch, and uh, you better have had your questions prepared. For her, she was not somebody who suffered fools lightly, but it, you know she has taken some hits in in recent months, specifically, um, and in the last couple of weeks, from a New Yorker story by Jane Mayer uh, that talked about her alleged cognitive decline, and I think that the um, incident that most sort of prompted that story was uh, her hugging Lindsey Graham. Uh, during the Amy Coney Barrett uh, confirmation hearings, her comment that this was a great hearing. Many Democrats were furious at her. Chuck Schumer, we know how to talk with her. And uh, obviously some folks started talking about uh, whether uh, she should leave the stage. However, I I have to say, those who know her um, uh, in San Francisco, I've talked to John Burton this week, who's uh, in his late eighties, he's known her for years. And he basically said to, and I'm quoting, she's a tough broad. She's survived a lot of stuff and she's not leaving the stage early. Um, that she, he said that she's going to stick it out. And the, the fact is, I mean, she, Jessica, I think she's, she's going to get a lot of political pressure and she'll be asked about this regularly. Um, but many who know her say she is not one to quit. Um, but if she keeps getting these questions and if there are more and more stories and more and more scrutiny, we'll have to see how it plays out. The fact is, I mean, you know, she's had such an incredible career and, and a lot of people who, who love her and admire her say maybe it is time for her to go. But she says she has to be ready. And whether she is, that's the question. For me, it reminds me a little bit of the discussion of, you know, should Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg step down? And I have mm-hmm. this from the outside perspective that women who achieve these positions in life, whether it be Supreme Court justice or member of the U.S. Senate, who have been told their entire life, it's too soon for you, it's too late for you, it's not your time, you should step aside, you're not the right person, that the same personality who says, it is my time, I am the right person, is -hmm. the same personality that doesn't want to step down. So, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. I think there are, We'll see, but I, I suspect that Governor Newsom does not have another vacancy to fill. And that brings us a little bit to Governor Newsom himself. We're recording in the middle of a surge on a surge, and it increasingly feels like if you and I had had this conversation in early April, we would have been saying, wow, he <laughs> saved us. You know, he yeah, really, yeah. look at, we're not New York. And I am very worried that we're about to be New York. I mean, this is, I can't believe I'm going to say this sentence, but there are rumors that we're about to run out of body bags. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. has to be a huge part of his legacy. And how how does it seem that 
Governor Newsom is doing. He was a bright light in the Democratic Party. Is his star fading or do we not know yet? Well, I think, I mean, this is um, politics in California and in an age of pandemic. I mean, here's a guy who's, as you said, was considered the rising star in the Democratic Party. And a lot of people were talking about him running for president. Um, and now uh, now what we're talking about a lot is uh, a, a, the threat of a recall that may be hanging over him uh, that we could be we could be facing uh, next year if they get the signatures uh, required. That's uh, 1.5 million signatures by March. And the proponents of that recall effort tell me that uh, they're halfway there in that uh, in that quest. So. Look, it's still a long shot effort and Republicans in California have a major albatross around their neck. And that is Donald Trump. He's still uh, historically unpopular. And any Republican effort to recall Newsom, um, whose whose poll numbers are still pretty high, um, is going to be uh, Trump is going to play, uh, I think, a role in that in the sense of Democrats can say this is uh, yet another effort by Republicans and Trump to uh, undo or to at least try to sidestep a, a an election. He's up for election in two years. Uh, and let's face it, the only way the Republicans could get a, uh, a, a gubernatorial candidate elected in California pretty much is through a recall or a special election because they are so far behind on voter registration uh, in California. So at this point, it, it, this recall effort is is uh, a long shot, but it's a real risk for Governor Newsom. He he really faces uh, an issue if it comes up. Look, California right now has um, very sort of lo- a low bar to put a recall on the ballot. We have a an industry here in in signature collecting because of our initiative process. And the Republicans are taking advantage of that. Now they have a major fundraiser who's behind it, behind this and working to raise money. They're going to need something like two to three million dollars at least uh, to get this done. And uh, look, it's it. Newsom has a target on his back, Jessica. He's on uh, Fox News, Newsmax and uh, and a lot of the conservative channels every day of the week uh, for some of them, his own self-inflicted wounds like this French laundry dinner. But look, there's a lot of business out there that is unhappy with the closures uh, related to this pandemic. There are a lot of parents with school-age kids that are at their wit's end. They want their kids to go back to school. And then you got tech stars like Elon Musk and Larry Ellison who are taking their billions and going elsewhere. And there's a new headline every day about that. Uh, So this is a very tough time for Newsom, uh, and he's got to be careful about this recall and certainly got to be cognizant about it, because if if they get those signatures, um, it's Katie bar the door. <laughs> Jessica, we could have yeah. a couple yeah. of hundred people on the ballot for the governor of California next year. And, and in a recall election, it's not a majority that wins the governorship. It's a plurality, whoever gets the most votes which means if you have several hundred candidates, which is possible, by the way, um, you could have a Kanye West or a The Rock (laughs) or name any number of uh, candidates that are well-known to the public and have name recognition. That is how Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was at at the time the number one box office star in the world, um, got elected in 60 days back in 2003. Well, I can formally announce that I will not be one of the people <laughs> on the ballot. Um, 
It only and, takes, by the way, 65 signatures and $4,000 uh, to get on the ballot. That's, that, and that's the same requirement that, that it was in 2003. That was before Facebook and Twitter even existed. So you can imagine now, I think my, my dog can probably raise that in, uh, in 24 hours on GoFundMe. <laughs> I'm still pretty sure I'm not in the running, but, um, but now I feel almost a little bit worse about it. So thank you for that. Now, two more substantive questions. You have covered Vice President-elect Kamala Harris for a long time. And what do you think a national audience should know about her that maybe we haven't seen based on the you know COVID-style campaigning that she's been able to take part in based on the videos? What's something you'd like to tell a national audience about her? Well, I think, I mean, Kamala Harris is another American story. I mean, you know, a, a child of an Indian mother um, uh, and a Jamaican father who grew up here in Oakland, where I'm speaking to you from, was born here, uh, said that she got a stroller eye view of uh, civil unrest and protests from her parents. So she grew up with a, and that um, she tells a very a wonderful anecdote, which is in uh, Dan Marine's new book, that one of her first words as she's in her stroller uh, going to civil rights demonstrations, uh, her parents asked her what she wanted, and she said, freedom. <laughs> so, I mean, this is, a, this is a woman who grew up uh, with politically, um, you know, colored and uh, uh, understanding um, sort of the, the risks and the, uh, uh, and, the, and the goals of political activity. Uh, I think, you know, over the years we've watched her, she's a she can be a great communicator, somebody who has great charisma uh, with voters and her ability and face to face with voters. Her energy is something that she's already brought to to Biden, her ability to connect with people. I think that is um, something to watch. And her advocacy, I think we, we're going to have to watch for some of the issues that she has um, embraced in California. That Those have been women's rights issues, women's reproductive rights issues. Uh, the issues of um, of, of uh, teenagers and children uh, and and their rights on, on the educational front, consumer issues. She has been very strong at, um, and I think we're going to see uh, her her take those issues and make them hers. Uh, th- that's something to watch with Kamala Harris. We also know her to be you know very very cautious in some respects in terms of putting herself out there on very controversial. Issues, and I think in that respect, she might be a big help to Joe Biden in the in the sense that she's not a flamethrower. She's not somebody who's going to go out and make uh, a lot of headlines on controversial issues. Um, she didn't do it in California. She held back on taking positions on some on some very big propositions here in California, like uh, legalizing marijuana. Um, but the fact is that as a groundbreaker, that she is a uh, first woman, first. South Asian and first black woman to hold that office. Uh, this is going to be something to watch, um, you know, not just for women, um, but across the globe. Uh, people are going to be watching uh, what she does. And, you know, we've seen it here in California. And I think the rest of the country now is going to be introduced to that. So it's going to be uh, just a fascinating and historic period for, uh, uh, for, for the Biden-Harris administration and, and for women in a lot of ways. Last 
substantive question for you. There's <laughs> there's yes. more breaking news, which is that President Trump has issued 20 pardons. And from my perspective, the founders really put the pardon power in the Constitution because they wanted the president to be able to act as a failsafe, or they wanted the president to be able to make decisions that were in the national interest. Now, in the Constitution, there's very little limitation on the pardon power. Essentially, no pardons in the case of impeachments. Pardons can only reach federal crimes, not state crimes. And that's about it. We don't even know if you can issue a self-pardon. You can pardon for uh, things that people have not even been tried for. It's really, really broad. And President Trump has really taken that broad power out for a spin. I know the news just broke, but do you have a couple of takeaways from us in terms of what we've just seen? I mean, I, I, this is this is a president whose campaign slogan was to drain the swamp. Um, <laughs> it looks like the, the swamp is getting a pass in, in, in every uh, uh, in, in these latest headlines. I mean, Duncan Hunter uh, gets a pardon. This is uh, this is. The, the Republican House candidate uh, from San Diego area who was sentenced to 11 months for uh, campaign corruption, uh, who, who admitted um, spending more than a quarter of a million dollars in campaign funds for things like private school tuition, you know, wife shopping sprees, family trips to Hollywood, a Thanksgiving in Italy. Um, and supporting a variety of mistresses, according to uh, the 87-page uh, government document involved. This, this, uh, even Republicans uh, like John Fleischman, well-known uh, California Republican, are on Twitter saying, "What a terrible decision this is! What is the message? Uh, it's not drain the swamp. <laughs> uh, it's kind of celebrate the swamp at this point." Um, I, I, the question is, how many more of these are there to come? Uh, and I, I think if, if, if in fact Trump wants to have a future, either as a candidate or as a media mogul, um, you've got to wonder what kind of effect this will have on his uh, base. Uh, what is what is the message? If you are a friend of uh, of Trump uh, and you're, you know, convicted. Of particularly white collar crimes, it appears um, you get a pass. Well, right that that is the message. And uh, listeners, I suspect that we will be doing a separate episode just <laughs> on pardons. But since I have Carla Marinucci here, I had to ask. Now, um, now I have some. I'm not going to ask you the three questions that we always ask our guests at the end of the show because you are. Um, a repeat guest, one of our very first, if not our first repeat guests. <laughs> and so instead, I'm going to ask you, because we talked about the American stories of Alex Padilla and Shirley Weber and Kamala Harris, I'm going to ask you about something that you posted on Facebook that really um, made me smile. You posted a picture of yourself. It's outside the Italian American Central Pastry Shop. Yes, and right. you said, that's me in the short shorts and my two brothers, uh, Steve and Jerry, and my grandparents, um, and your aunt and uncle. Can you tell us a little bit about just what did you think when you found that picture? And when would the girl in the picture have envisioned that you would be 
one of the leading journalists in California and covering oh, California politics for the that's, that's Super kind of you. But um, I mean, that picture was from the 60s. My And yes, I have um, uh, immigrant roots too. My All of my relatives were Italian immigrants. All of them, none of them ever um, um, came out of uh, even high school. Uh, my parents didn't either, and and I was the first uh, girl in my in my family to go to college, and yeah, we uh, we had an Italian a Sicilian bakery in Jersey City. Uh, I, I like to say that before there was a show of The Sopranos, uh, I kind of watched those that whole cast of characters tra- uh, traipsing in and out of my family's um, uh, bakery every day. Um, at, at one point, I had to wait on. Um, Carlo Gambino, the famous crime boss, um, as a kid. And I, I think it gave me a sense of, um, I saw the exploitation of my family by these organized crime figures. And I, and it kind of, kind of gave me a sense of right and wrong and, um, what kind of, uh, truth needed to be put out in terms of, uh, um, you know, stories. It, 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 it's part, one of the things I think that, uh, um, it, inspired me to become a journalist, uh, at, at some point, um, that I, I don't know what my, my family would say. And all of them were peasants and very poor and under, you know, the current immigration rules, the efforts to restrict immigration, none of them would qualify, uh, under the current Trump rules to, uh, they didn't have the, fan, the, uh, the money or the connections. But the fact is, um, yeah, that the, these are the kind of stories, um, that, that, that make America and uh, my Sicilian roots uh, have been um, so important in, in giving me a perspective on um, uh, life in this country. And um, I'm very, very proud of them. So uh, that, that's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to, uh, I stand on the shoulders of those poor grandparents and aunts and uncles uh, who, uh, who taught me how to make biscotti and some pretty great pizza, I must say. (laughs) Well, That was actually going to be my last question to you, which is, I have the good fortune in life of knowing you both professionally and personally, and I have seen you on, I think it's much more to my benefit than yours, but I've seen on Facebook that pizza oven. So I wanted to ask you, we're going into the holidays, what will you be making? And, um, and I really... I hope that we'll be celebrating in person at some point. Yes, I do too. I do too. Uh, what I'm making in person, since I'm both Jewish and Sicilian, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to navigate the cuisines of both, and that is that is uh, like to my detriment uh, on the scale. But man, it's really fun. So <laughs> biscotti, latkes, you know, it all it's it's all together. <laughs> If that isn't an American dinner to be proud of, I don't know what is. So at this point, I have to say thank you for your time because I can't take any more of it. I've already been very, um, I've already been very generous with it. So um, people can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Past Judgment Pod, Carla on Twitter at C Marinucci. And again, she is a senior writer for Politico. And um, I read the, yours is the first email I get every day. I get the Politico California playbook. And sometimes I'm awake when it rolls in (laughs) right around 6 a.m. And it is indispensable reading. And Carla, thank you so much for your time. 
Thank you, Jessica. Always, always a gift to be with you and happy holidays. Happy holidays. And we're going to wish everyone a wonderful day. And we're going to be back with even more episodes than we had originally planned uh, this week. So take care, everybody.